to the person next to you and say, you're on the team. Good. <clears throat> you're on the team. Every single person who is in Christ is on the team for the kingdom of God. Um, quite a number of you um, gave me a bit of feedback last night, which was really helpful, uh, but it was the same feedback, which is, please show us a picture of your dog. Um, so here is Monty, our dog, hopefully coming up in a moment. Look at Monty, he's a working cocker spaniel. Um, uh, I have to say I was a reluctant convert to dogs. Anyone here got a dog? Quite a lot of you. So you, some of you will know this, but it took me a while to realize that gods are a, gods, dogs are a gift from God. There's a great book, if you're interested, called The Grace of Dogs by Andrew Root, who's a theologian. It's an outstanding book, and he basically makes the point, as you can see, that the grace of God is echoed by the grace of dogs. Dogs are super gracious. You can do whatever you like to them. They'll still love you, basically. Um, and he goes on to say, you should be the kind of human that your dog thinks you are. Um, so you can have that one for free. Um, you know, just keep going. Right. Um, as I said last night, uh, this morning we're going to look at four priorities for those of us who find ourselves called to live this particular life, this life of a faithful presence in and for the world as exiles. Quick recap. There's a little diagram I made up this morning. Um, we are exiled people. Now, what we were trying to, I was trying to give you the kind of the big overview last night. The, the first exile, it turns out, is actually the one from all crea- of all creation ex- ex- exiled from the Garden of Eden. It finds itself outside the garden because of the invading forces, the evil one, the snake, the serpent. And we are, as a people, lost in the wilderness. And if you know the story... You get to Genesis 11, and apart from God, the people have decided to build their own tower to get themselves to God so they could become like God. Uh, The Tower of Babel, which is what is now, or what became Babylon. So Babel is Babylon, okay, just so you've got that reference point. And it needs someone to lead the people out uh, of, of uh, it needs a deliverance to happen, and it's Abraham. God raises up Abraham. And says to him, I want you to take my people and we're going to start again, basically. You're going to be uh, a particular way of, you're going to live out a particular way of life as my people in and for the world. Uh, That doesn't work, as you know. And so, as we saw yesterday, the people of God who are in Jerusalem finally get taken over by the Babylonian Empire, King Nebuchadnezzar, who was not a very nice man. Uh, And uh, they find themselves in exile in Babylon. And down the line, of course, the likes of Nehemiah, etc., are sent back or allowed to go back by the Persian Empire that takes over from the Babylonian Empire, and they rebuild the city walls. They try to reestablish the things that Abraham was tasked with trying to reestablish, which was God's original intention for creation in the garden. Uh, we then see in uh, the Gospels um, that the people of God find themselves um, exiled from um, who they're meant to be, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, they're scattered, aren't they? There's that great persecution because of the Babylon of their day, the Roman Empire. And of course, it's into that world, that Roman Empire, that Jesus comes, uh, which is why the zealots think he's come to overthrow Rome, because remember, they're the ones that fight. So they think he's come to fight Rome. Of course, as we saw yesterday, what Paul reminds us is, or teaches us is, the fight isn't with flesh and blood. Which is why Jesus says, that's not my fight. My fight actually is with the devil, with the evil one. 
that, that ultimate invading force. And in the first coming of Jesus, the covenant relationship between God and his people is restored. And so you and I, as people who've been brought back into right relationship with God, are sent on assignment. More of that tomorrow. We're missio people, mission, missionaries from the Latin, missio to be sent. We're sent in the name of Jesus, in the power of the Spirit, to outwork what he began. So he said, I am with you to the very end of the age, and I will complete what I've started. So when he returns in the fullness of time, all creation will be restored. In the meantime, we find ourselves all over the earth as the people of God uh, in our own form of Babylon. We tried to do a really quick bit of diagnosis yesterday uh, so we get a reality check. But it's really important that when we look at the world, when we watch the news, when we read Twitter, we remember that this is Babylon. We're in Babylon. It doesn't define us. It is our reality, but we're sent to it in the name of Jesus, in the power of the Spirit, uh, with authority. Uh, Not to fight the symptoms of it, the signs of it, the human version of it, but to remember that we're actually fighting on behalf of the kingdom of God. So Eugene Peterson puts it like this. He says, the essential meaning of exile is that we are where we don't want to be. We are separated from home. It is an experience of dislocation. Everything is out of joint. Nothing fits together. And that's how it feels, isn't it? We have this moment where we look at it and go, this is not right. This is not it. Surely not. All the evidence of our lives, all the evidence of our communities uh, tell us that. So how do we live as exiles? How do we live as what I call holy exiles? Uh, because everyone, in, in a sense, is an exile, whether they realize it or not. All, all people are made in the image of God, whether they know that or not. So everyone's living out some form of exile life. None of us are where we're meant to be. But we have this understanding, this dual citizenship, because we're now in right relationship with God, even though we're not home yet. So we're holy. We're sanctified exiles, sent, uh, as I've said, into the world. Viv Thomas, the writer, calls this our second choice world. And and we have to make a decision again and again and again. I would argue it's a daily one to commit to our Babylon, uh, to commit to a faithful presence in and for it, because it's this world that God made. And the judgment of of God in Jesus Christ is that it is still good. And that you and I, made in the image of God, are still very good. So I believe in original sin, but I also believe in original goodness. And we're calling that out all the time. Our home in the fullness of time is not a, a, an end disembodied reality. We're not going to float to some new heavenly reality up in the sky, you know, and if we're Irish, we get Guinness, so everyone else, bad luck. Like, that's not the vision. The vision is a new heaven and a new earth. The, those two realities finally coming back together here. And all that is good and of God will be, ma- will be uh, refined in the fire and given fresh expression in the new creation. More of that tomorrow. So my friend Pete Hughes, who I think has been and done one of these weekends a few years ago. Do you remember him? He's, am- he's amazing. He is amazing. His book is worth getting uh, all things new. He says, the story you live in is the story you live out. The story you live in is the story you live out. So what story are you living in? Are we inhabiting this biblical story, however hard and costly? And if we are, then we'll live that out together in community. You can't do it on your own. It's too hard. Um, or, or are we living out some other story because we're actually living in some other story? Many of us, if we're not careful, end up with some sort of what uh, theologians call therapeutic moral de- deism. 
this kind of idea that we basically, we kind of do a version of the 21st century uh, Western life with a bit of a Christian veneer. Therapeutic God bit. But actually, fundamentally, our values, our aims, and our objectives are no different to our neighbors. I got so tired of my friends who came to faith with me in the early 20s, who've traded kind of mission and evangelism and the things of the kingdom for pensions and patios. It's like, oh, really? You know, have a pension by all means. Have a patio by all means, but not at the expense of changing the world. So the question is, are we going to fight, control, withdraw, compromise, or, as I said last night, engage? That's the vision, to engage, I would say. So a couple of things by way of introduction to Daniel. But if you've got a Bible, turn it uh, on. Um, (laughs) Or if you've got a paper one, extra marks to you for the simple reason that um, we know neuroscientists tell us that we remember things better when we read them on paper than on a screen. It's really interesting. So if you want to remember your Bible, uh, bring a paper one with you. And um, you'll find that as you read it, you're more likely to remember it. It also means you help, it helps you work out where everything fits, you know, so you know where Daniel actually is in the scriptures. So turn to Daniel chapter 1, we'll get there in a moment, but just a bit of background for you. <coughs> 597 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar finally attacks Judah, which is the southern tribe. So by this point, the people of God are divided into the northern tribe and the southern tribe, got Israel and Judah. Israel's already been taken captivity. He goes after Judah, the second bit. Um, After a lot of warnings from God that this was going to happen because of the disobedience of God's people. And so they're taken into captivity and exile. We find out later from Jeremiah that it's meant to be a 70-year exile, geographical one, political one. Uh, It turns out to be a little bit, um, well, yeah, basically that's true. The Persian Empire takes over. So it's 70 years in captivity to Babylon. Exile went on a lot, lot longer. And we read in verses 3 and 4 of Daniel chapter 1, if you've got it in front of you. We're not going to read it all, we'll be here all day. Um, But that's that's why I encourage you to read it before you came. So those of you who did, all power to you. But basically what happens is, uh, Daniel says in verses 1 and 2, this is what's happened. Nebuchadnezzar came and invaded and took over. Verses 3 and 4, it tells us that he takes the nobility, uh, and it notices the particularly good-looking, clever, and qualified. So like the likes of a John Soper basically, are in, right? Um, Come on. That was for two reasons. One, he's vain. Not John, um, Nebuchadnezzar. Um, John is not vain, you know that. Um, And and so it's all presentation. It's all all optics, as we would call it today, because it's kind of reflected glory, if that makes sense. You surround yourself with the best, makes you look really good. but also because he wants the brightest and the best educated, and they would have been the ones, that the, the richer, more noble ones, they would have had those opportunities. And basically, Daniel and his friends are part of this group taken into exile. They're teenagers at this point, and they find themselves being trained, essentially, to become senior civil servants. Anyone here a civil, civil servant? Bless you if you are. You're doing an impossible job. Um, Babylon, uh, as I said, was the biggest empire of its day, but Babylon itself as a city was the biggest city in the known world. It was an extraordinary place. Uh, One of the seven wonders of the ancient world, in fact. You remember the hanging gardens of Babylon? Side note. Actually, this is a question for you just to wonder. Why why did people build these or make these beautiful big gardens, these empire rulers? 
Why did they create these extraordinary gardens? Why, when um, the Victorian era was, uh, did Christian philanthropists pay for these huge gardens that are now all in the National Trust? Why do we love gardening, lots of us, or nature? Little question for you to ponder. Um, so it's a famous place. It's the center of prosperity and education and culture and technology. There had been so much about it that was exciting and wonderful. It's like, you know, London. Ooh, actually, but when you get there, you realize under the belly of it, it's really dysfunctional. And there are all sorts of power dynamics. And Nebuchadnezzar was not a nice man. And so actually, he's really about power and domination and expanding the empire at all costs. So Daniel knows this. Daniel, they know of Babylon. They find themselves going, oh, heck. And how he chooses to live uh, in Babylon on behalf of God, to, to live out a faithful presence, I would argue, is really instructive for us as we think about doing that. Just to note, verse 21, right at the end, it says uh, that he was there until the reign of King Cyrus. Now, King Cyrus is the first Persian king. Do you remember the Persian Empire takes over from the Babylonian Empire? So Daniel never goes home. They went, assuming at some point, we're going to go home. But he never gets to go home. He lives there and he dies there. I say that because um, we've got to be willing to die here. Because actually in the fullness of time, we know, don't we, that we're going to find ourselves at home regardless. Are we willing to lay down our life? the things of the kingdom or not. Daniel, I would argue, goes down in history as one of the most remarkable leaders. You'll see in a moment, he finds himself leading the Babylonian Empire and then the Persian one. No one else on, that, on earth has ever done that. And we'll come back to this briefly tomorrow, but he is, of course, the precursor for the true king, the true ruler of the true empire, Jesus himself. So they don't fight they don't withdraw, they don't resist, they don't control, they don't compromise, they don't conform. They choose, and I would argue, if you look at the text carefully, that they've resolved ahead of time that when we get there, we're going to live for the glory of God. We're going to live out our, our faith in Yahweh, regardless of the cost. There would have been a three-month journey, they reckon, from Jerusalem to Babylon. I wonder what conversations they had on the way. You know, what conversations are you going to have on the way home as you head back to Exeter? Are you, like, you going to resolve when you go home tomorrow to live for the sake of the kingdom of God in Exeter, regardless of the cost? I think that is part of the challenge. So four priorities for us, two now and two after coffee. The first is radical holiness. Let's just start, you know, with the easy one. Is that all right? Um, Radical holiness. I don't know when the last time you heard a sermon on holiness. John and I were talking about this the other day. We don't teach it very much. It's not something that's been on the radar for a while, but I think it should be back on the radar for reasons that will become apparent in a moment. I should have said these four priorities, they're interrelated. They're multifaceted, so we're trying to paint out a picture here. Uh, so bear with me as we go. The first is radical holiness. If you look in Daniel, uh, the second half of Daniel chapter 1, eight, verses 8 through to 16, um, they find themselves, don't they, thrown into these, the court of the king. This is Nebuchadnezzar. Like, anything is possible. There's, no, there's limitless money. It's the best of everything. Some of you may have seen the picture of Vladimir Putin yesterday at the rally, uh, with uh, people forced to go to this rally to celebrate the annexation of the Crimea. He's in an 11,000-pound Italian puffer jacket. Do you see the disconnect? Like, he's got all the money in the world, 
He's riling against the West, but there he is in an 11,000-pound puffer coat. He's a, I'm just making the, the parallels for you with Nebuchadnezzar. It's a good job this isn't on YouTube or something. Um, <laughs> so they find themselves in these courts. It's all on offer. It says earlier on that, they, that, that a portion of the food and the wine has been assigned to them. They get to share in this. There's all this temptation. It's seductive. Wealth and power is seductive. But Daniel and his friends, we're told in verse 8, refuse to engage with that. They say, it says, they would not be defiled by the drinking the king's food and wine. That is shorthand for, actually, they made some decisions to remain holy and distinctively different because of their faith in Yahweh. Graham Cray, uh, Bishop Graham Cray, theologian bishop, talks about an involved distinctiveness. They are involved, but they're distinctive. You know, you and I are called to be involved, but different. And it plays out in the daily choices. So they refuse to drink the royal food and wine. All sorts of reasons, partly because actually um, in those days, those, that food and wine would have been sacrificed to a false god. And they're saying, no, no, we worship Yahweh. We can't take something that's been sacrificed to another false god. That's not our faith. And it defiles us if we do that. Similarly, there's food laws, purity laws in, in the Jewish Torah that they would have been sticking to uh, because they've chosen to, conv- out of conviction. So they go, because of our faith, because of our preconceived, predetermined resolutions, we, we're not going to engage with that. Now, uh, right from the get-go, they're pretty hardcore because everyone else would have been like, what are you doing? But they say no to that. And part of it is because their identity as the people of God is is expressed through these choices. And so they know that their witness is shortchanged if they compromise on their convictions. Our witness to the world is shortchanged. We undermine it when we compromise. We say one thing, but we do another. Uh, One of the biggest uh, reasons the research says that people aren't interested in Christianity is the hypocrisy of Christians. Discuss over coffee. And notice in verse 2, just go back a few verses, Daniel makes reference to the fact that when Nebuchadnezzar and his crew uh, ransacked Jerusalem, they take some of the vessels out of the temple. Why is he mentioning that? Well, it's symbolic that the glory of God has been taken from the temple. And I wonder sometimes whether when he wandered around in between meetings, did he go and look at them in the museum? Just, like, just to remind him that these things these symbolized who he was for, what he was about. And he's kind of got this visual reminder, probably, they're here, but they're not meant to be here, and I'm not meant to be here. We're all meant to be there, and we're meant to be like that. And so I'm going to make sure I stay like this for that bigger picture, if that makes sense. Daniel understood, I would argue, that in order to witness to the glory and the holiness of God, which is our faith, he needed to ensure that his character, his holiness, his personality were molded and shaped and defined by the holiness of God himself. Be holy as I am holy. So that's the first priority for you and I. Radical holiness, whatever the cost. And it's hard. It's hard. Verse 15 uh, is fascinating. The result of this is, it says, they looked healthier and better nourished than anyone else in the court. It got the attention of the courtiers. Uh, God honors Daniel, honoring him, I would argue. And notice the effect of this. Verse 17 They're gifted by God, it says, with knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. 
they have this heightened spiritual awareness that they're given and a prophetic anointing, more of that after the break. But Daniel operates on a spiritual plane unlike anyone else. Nebuchadnezzar therefore gives him his favor, which leads to him having more influence. And we'll see that pattern evolves over the course of Daniel's story. Holiness, I would argue, is underrated. It requires obedience. We know, don't we, what God calls us to be like and to do. He calls us, we, we know what he calls us not to do. We know the parameters. They're there in the scriptures. We teach them. We know them intuitively. We have a conviction and a conscience. We know. We know when we push past those boundaries. And I would argue that if we're serious about being the kind of church in this season, uh, this moment in human history that is going to really, really shine for Jesus, the first thing we've got to reconcile ourselves to is the call to radical holiness. And someone's got to go first from among you. Just call it. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to be defiled. I'm not going to compromise on my convictions. Let's resolve to be holy. Let's resolve to... to holiness isn't just not doing certain things. It's not doing certain things so that you can do other things so that you can become someone who uh, is radiating the glory of God, who has that spiritual anointing and authority. You know, in the kingdom of God, it's the personal work, the internal work, that qualifies us for the public work, the external work. That's what God honors. That's what God raises up in Daniel. That's what Nebuchadnezzar sees. There's favor on him, uh, on Daniel from God, and Nebuchadnezzar follows. Now, the way of the world is different. We often raise up the person who's super gifted and charismatic and can hold the room and all of that. And we don't necessarily always wonder or ask questions about their private life. And we have this at the moment, don't we, in politics and celebrity culture where we kind of go, well, what they do in private doesn't really matter. It's what they do in public. It's absolute nonsense. So we're called to be different on that. I, I, you know, don't, if, you, if you shouldn't be on a platform, if, you, you know, if, you, if who you are isn't who you really are. <laughs> that makes sense. So holiness, character. Notice what Peter says versus when he's writing to the exiles in Babylon, uh, the Jewish and Gentile people in Rome. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world, notice this, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. It's that war language again. The powers and principalities battle. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Abstain. Abstain. And it's all about just keeping on the right side of the line on one level, just being sensible. But part of it is about this pursuit of God. Out of love and intimacy, the, the more pure we are, the more we can be inhabited by the fullness of his spirit, the more we'll shine out in this world. Shine like stars, Paul says in Philippians, doesn't he? James 4, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Sounds super easy. There's loads of scriptures you could go to, right? Submit yourselves to God. That's what I think Daniel and his friends did. They submitted themselves. Lord, you've, you've taken us here, but as for as long as we're here, we submit to you in your way, whatever the cost. And God honors that. So holiness, priority number one. You okay? Good. Uh, number two, then, and it relates, is faithfulness to God. Faithfulness to God. Daniel and his friends, I think, remain faithful to God, whatever 
the cost. They are under huge pressure to conform and to compromise. There's huge temptation, as I say, seductive power uh, and wealth. And they make these intentional and proactive choices, which we see played out in the story, and which, again, God honors. And I say that because the holiness thing is worked out often in private, isn't it? It's what you do first thing in the morning. It's what you do last thing at night. It's what you do in between the two. And it's, it's the inner stuff. It's the hidden stuff. It's the private place. Um, this second one is the public expression of this. Remaining faithful to God isn't just about you and me. It's, about, uh, it's actually about how we in- engage with the world around us, people around us. And so it's more on show. And that's why one leads into the other. It begins with their names. Notice verse 7 of chapter 1. The chief official gave them new names. So Daniel is named Belteshazzar. Um, Shadrach becomes Hananiah. Meshach becomes Mishael. Abednego becomes Azariah. Or the way, other way around, sorry. Um, yeah, other way around. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah become Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, they're given new names. And they're given Babylonian names. But Daniel and his friends, we're told, don't actually take these names on. They do on one level... Like, they play the tactic game. Yeah, you call me what you like. But that's not who I am. My name is Daniel. Uh, I went to Uganda recently, uh, a couple of years ago, just before lockdown. Um, I say recently, because is it just me? It was like lockdown melted your brain around time. <laughs> Feels like it three months ago, but it was actually about 97 years ago. Um, and um, I, I met um, some lads uh, at this thing we were doing. And, th- and, and this is no joke. Four brothers. Daniel. Yeah, yeah, the parents would call them after these four. But they introduced themselves. Hey, I'm Daniel. I'm a son of God. Hey, I'm Meshach. I'm a son of God. That was their name. That's how they introduced themselves. My name's Rich. I'm a son of God. We don't do that, do we? That would be a bit weird. But actually, maybe it should become normal. And I say that because um, in the kingdom of God and through the scriptures, the naming of things is really important. So why is Nebuchadnezzar wanting to rename them? He's trying to co-opt them. He's trying to put a new identity on them, a new cultural norm on them. He's trying to say, you're now Babylonian. And they're like, no, I'm an Israelite. I'm going to remain faithful to Yahweh. And one of the things I'm not going to let you do is rename me. Because in renaming me, you, you give me a new identity. You redefine me. You, you take something from me and put something on me. And, and so they resist that. So, we know, so notice, just flick over to chapter 2, verse 17. Daniel's writing here, we'll come to this story later. Daniel returns to his house, explains the matter to his friends. He's got himself into a bit of trouble. Uh, And notice it explains it to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The names are still there. So at home, they call themselves what they're really called. Interestingly, Jesus renames people. But he renames people positively. So Saul becomes Paul. Yeah? Yeah? Uh, what's your name? Many of you um, may have had Christian parents or may be parents to children who are here and you've prayerfully thought about what you're going to call your child. Because in naming a child, um, you are actually bestowing an identity upon them. And when it's prayerfully discerned, God really honors that. And so here, Daniel is saying, well, we're gonna, no, 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 we've been named by God. And our name tells you something about who I am. I need a Hebrew name, Daniel, because I'm a Hebrew. And I'm a Hebrew, and I'm a Yahweh worshiper. 
that make sense? So, they remain faithful to God. Now, I think, uh, to turn over to chapter 3, we see this faithfulness to God expressed again in the story. Okay, so here's what's going on. Chapter 3, verse 12. Um, we read that King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, because he's an egomaniac, has decided to make a huge gold image of himself, an idol, and demand that everyone worship him. Because that's what happens. Power corrupts, and you become, a, you know, essentially you become a parody of yourself. Notice what happens. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah refuse. Why do they refuse? Because they can only worship Yahweh. That's who they are. They're going to remain faithful to him. So they refuse, even though that means putting them at odds with the biggest empire of the day in which they are in slavery and meant to serve. And so verse uh, 15, it says, the king is furious and threatens to throw the three friends into the fiery furnace if they refuse. I mean, he's a nice guy. Verse 18, despite that threat, they still refuse. So the king is even more furious because he's not getting his own way. Dictators, when they don't get their own way, they just become more and more and more angry and they use more and more power to destroy everything around them. Is that sounding familiar? The king is even more furious, orders the furnace to be made seven times hotter, and then they're thrown in. The soldiers who throw them in are killed in the process. So, yeah, I mean, this is getting messy now. The friends of Daniel aren't. So when the king looks in, he's stunned to see they're not dead, but there's also a fourth person there. There's an angel with them, and he protects them. They're unharmed, and they come out. What's the result? Same thing as before with holiness, favor. Favor, which leads to influence. Daniel 3, the end, says, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, this is nice, be cut into pieces, and the houses be turned into piles of rubble. So he's not quite got there, but, but he's saying... <laughs> Everybody on the planet, you now need to, you cannot do anything against the God of Yahweh, uh, the, the Yahweh, the God of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. It's now, the law has flipped. And if you break that law, I'm going to kill you. Something like, God, work in progress. But it's still progress, nonetheless. So they, ex- they discover the protection of the king. The promotion they get to influence and power alongside Daniel comes because they stayed faithful to God. God could raise them up in that place because they remain faithful to him. And against all the odds, that, that powerful, nasty king <laughs> sees something and understands something because it's powerful. It's more powerful. Jesus remains faithful to God in exile. He's exiled from the heavenly places, incarnated into the earthly mess that we've made, and remains faithful despite all of the power and temptation on offer. Sorry, the temptation and all the power and wealth on offer. That's what the devil's doing, by the way, in the desert, isn't it? Do you want to compromise? Do you want a new name? Do you want to, do you want to give up that and become this? Do you want to kind of co-op, get co-opted into Babylon? Jesus resists that. No, 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 no. He's faithful to God in even unto death. And what happens? Well, he too is raised up literally raised from the dead, out of the ultimate fiery furnace. And it now enjoys extraordinary favor and influence as the true king of all the world and rules from there with a different set of 
values and methods to Nebuchadnezzar and any other empire ruler that we could think of. Do you see the point I'm trying to make? Uh, There will come a point, there will come a time, you'll have had these moments when you have to choose a king. When you have to choose, whose team are you on? Which story are you living in? What's your name? What does your name mean? Are you rich, son of the living God? Are you you going to be faithful to him, whatever the cost? We're not going to get fiery furnace moments, but we might lose our job. We might experience social death. You know those moments where you're like, I've got to say what I have to say because I worship Jesus, but actually everyone's going to think I'm weird. There'll be all sorts of points where you have to choose. You'll know these. You've probably got these stories you can tell. Daniel and his friends remain faithful to God. It's easier because they've pursued holiness. And because when you pursue holiness, you find yourself in a place of intimacy. And if you find yourself in a place of intimacy, you find yourself actually with greater authority. We'll come back to that later. But they still have to make these choices, these moments. And they surrender themselves. Submit yourselves to God, even unto death. Death to self is the way of Jesus. And I would say that the thing that will get the attention of the world in this moment, more than anything, is a faithful remnant of God's people really going for it, like really sold out, not compromising, not playing at it, not, you know, not kind of doing bits and pieces of it, but the whole thing, pursuing radical holiness, remaining faithful to God. Um, it's not as hard as we might think. I mean, it's really hard. <laughs> but it's not as hard as we might think. John chapter 15, and we'll finish with this. This famous passage from Jesus' teaching. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory. That's who we do it for. That you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. How will people know that God loves them? Jesus says, how will people know that you're my disciples? By the way you love one another. By the way you live and love and serve. That's how people will know. So, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. And he goes on to say, greater love has no one than this, but to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. Our role is faithfulness and obedience. Faithfulness to God obedience to God. When we do that, when we remain in him, when we pursue holiness, if you pursue holiness, you'll end up finding Jesus, who's the Holy One. And when you remain in him, he's faithful to us. 
as we seek to be faithful to him. He will honor us. He will go before us. And the fruitfulness that we long to see in our lives, which is the only biblical measure that you should assess your life against, am I bearing fruit for the things of the kingdom? Am I becoming more human? Wealth and power and postcode, who, whatever, temporary. That all comes as a byproduct of faithfulness and obedience. So when we pursue Jesus at all costs, he takes care of the rest in his economy. It's not always going to be what we want. It's not always going to be what the world offers, but it's better. And we know it's fruit that lasts. Should we pray? Let's take a moment. Maybe close your eyes if it's helpful. the spirit impressing upon you from what we've just looked at maybe it's a challenge maybe it's an affirmation maybe it's like oh no i get it and that's why that is hard and i need to do this oh yeah thank you lord capture it And what I pray, Lord, is you put in us by your spirit a desire for holiness, a desire for intimacy, a desire for faithfulness, out of a fresh conviction, a fresh revelation that you and you alone are the only one worth living for. That actually when we live for you and in you, we truly live. And that when we do that for us, we can actually do something for the world through us. And we get to write our names into the history books. Pray these things, Lord, in your name, for your fame alone. Amen. Coffee time! Thank you. Uh,